Great to see you. Uh, if you do not know me, my name is Corey Bendix. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Evangelism here. It's really good to see you. Um, if you could, feel free to go ahead and, and uh, turn your, into your Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 to 37, a very familiar text. Um, as, as you're in the process of, of going there, let, let me do this. I'd like to commend to you uh, the sermon that Pastor Tellus preached this past week. Um, he talked about how we as a church, uh, we are an open-handed church. And the more I've thought about that idea of being an open-handed people, that is probably the, the greatest description of the gospel that I can think of. If you think about it, Jesus came not controlling, not grasping, but open-handedly giving. All that he is, all that he was on the earth was not one that came to be served, but to serve. That he, that the only way that we live is if we receive what he has to give. That he is one who, who proves it by extending his arms and dying on a tree that he created. Open-handed. That he creates a church. And what's a church? Church exists to now collectively gather around this open-handed savior and embody that reality to one another. Where we forgive. <laughs> right? Like that's the impossible reality of our Christian reality is that we are now in the image of Jesus. We're ones that are extending forgiveness. We're extending generosity. We're giving. And then I, I love even the, the vision of this church. We're an open-handed church. I mean, the reason we give, we do benevolence offerings and have done that for 19, do you realize this has been 19 months of, of every week coming to you, having a heart for our city and going, will you be open-handed? Because that's who we are as a church. We're a church that exhausts and wrings ourselves out for our city. Because we have an open-handed gospel. We, had a, we have an open-handed reality of a church. And then this is the vision of who we are. We're planting churches in D.C. Why? We're open-handed. And I, I really believe 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, that, this is who we are. This is the vision of our church. This is why we exist. And, and I got me thinking, well, then if that's the case, what are the speed bumps of that process of being an open-handed people? What are the challenges that we're going to navigate what do we have to be aware of? And so I want to talk very briefly about open hands through open eyes. Open hands through open eyes. A seeing God creates a seeing people with open hands. Luke chapter 10. The story of the Good Samaritan. Familiar verse or story. I think my hope is that, uh, excuse the metaphor, but that your eyes will be open to this as well. I, th I really think that God's going to speak to us and allow for us to see Jesus very clearly and ourselves in a, in a very, very um, important perspective, which is small. We're going to see Jesus large and ourselves small. Verse 25 of chapter 10 is what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up. To put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, 
What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I love this. Jesus, he just pivots. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, and notice he doesn't even say the word Samaritan the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Lord, help us. We need you. Help us to see you freshly. In the name of Jesus, amen. Henry David Thoreau said this, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. This profound and infamous parable centers around three characters whose gaze happened to be on the same man who is desperate, broken, in need. Two of them, they look at this man and they retreat. But one who truly sees him, he doesn't retreat, he moves forward and he exhausts himself for the needs of this man. And if this is the reality, if what you look at, it's not about what you look at that matters, it's what you see. If two men looked at a problem and moved away and one man sees the problem moves in, then what is the difference between looking and seeing? What does it mean to look? What does it mean to see? Corey, is is that like, are you really going? Yes, absolutely. What what is is the difference between looking and seeing? Speaking to Pastor Jim here recently, he made a great assessment about looking and seeing. And this is what he said. He said, Looking is an act of volition, while seeing is, an act, is a gift of revelation. This is, this is what he means, is that when you look at something, you're using the faculty of your eyes. Is that it usually, it, it is inward in its focus. The focus of when you look at something, it's about the me. That, that shirt looks good to me. The car looks good to me. Yet when you see when, when you see something, it's a recognition of meaning. That there's something beyond the physical. You're seeing beyond it. There's meaning that you value. It's, an act, it's not just an activity of the eye. It's an activity of the heart. It often can lead to outward focus. It involves the we. And I think we look and have this, this tension between looking and seeing all the time. We live in a world where we're challenged with, are you going to look at something or are you going to see it? When your child comes to you and says, 
Dad, I'm wrestling with my identity. Your 14-year-old daughter comes to you and says, Dad, I don't know what, I'm not sure what I'm feeling inside. I'm wrestling. As a father, are you going to look and react or have a God word view that's bigger and respond? Your, your wife comes to you and says, Corey, or I, my wife comes to me and says, hey, Bendix, I see some serious things going on with your character. Your response to my kids, I don't know if I really like it. I'm really concerned. Will I look and react, or is, there, is it possible to, to have a seeing God who now puts his sight in me to be able to not just react, but have the courage to respond. I mean, for many of us, you know, we're in the midst of, of a potential transition with, with jobs. Are you going to look? Or are you going to see? Is it possible to look beyond all of the, the value of what it's, gonna, it's going to entail for you personally, where it's not just about uh, some type of upward mobility, but could it be that a transition like that has got, God is inviting you to have his sight for that moment. Here recently, we've been hearing a lot about what's happening at GCC Capitol Hill. And for many of you, you've looked at that. And that's good to, to hear it and look at it and respond to it from a just, just simply uh, facts perspective. But what if God wants to give you a fresh sight to actually see that through his perspective because he wants to do something in and through you? Look or see. Look or see. Now, the struggle is real with this whole idea of vision. It always has been. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we find that sin enters into the world through the sight of Eve. Do you, do you remember in Genesis 3, she looks, it says, I'll, I'll just read it very, very uh, briefly here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. What she saw is what she got. What you see is what you get. There is a, it's almost like there's a, ten, a tension, a, a cord that is connected from our eyes to our hearts, to our hands. That what you see now determines how you begin to respond and, and act and move. With Jesus, he even said it very clearly in Matthew 6. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. How your eye is, your whole body will be. And when it comes to our culture, the battle is raging when it comes to how we see. I mean, for example, there, there was here recently, there was, there, there was a poll um, for Gallup. 91% of people, according to Gallup, agreed with the following statement. The best way to find yourself is to look inward. See, what's, what's happening is that we're living in a culture that says, that, that has this response of the way that you identify your purpose is you first look in, you assess what you feel and what you want, you look around, and you gather people around you that support that conclusion that you've made, and then you look up, and you ask for God to sprinkle himself on what you've concluded. You look in, you look around, and you look up. 
And that is the ongoing philosophy of decision-making within the context of, of our life. Now, please understand that according to Genesis 3, that you and I naturally, we don't see right. We can't trust our eyes. And, and then on top of that, there is the pressure of us being our own God when that is how you conclude the world, is you have to look in, you look around, and you look up. You are the author and perfecter of your own life. And you can't handle that because you weren't made to. Yet this is the ongoing approach of, of how we see the world. And then we've got, we've got a battle for our attention. The average phone user touches their phone no less than 2,600 times a day. Now, let's just break this down just for, for, just for a second. Let's just say 600 of those are you checking email Phone and text, 600. That, that's a lot, but let's just say 600. Okay, 800. Do you realize 1,800 times a day, what we're doing is we're going to our phone to look at the brand of who we are on social media most of the time. We're, we're, we're finding some place to bring identity, and that's where we are going to, to look at. And, and let's just be very honest. As When it comes to our kids, there is an ongoing challenge and battle for our kids finding their identity in, in the phones that they have in their hand. Like this is, again, this is the constant, and that doesn't even include illicit, illicit websites that are ravaging eyes of our society. The battlefield has always been with the eyes. That the playground of Satan himself is how you are going to see, how you're going to see yourself how you're going to train your children on how they see themselves, that this is the battle that we face. And for, for you as a parent, if you're here and you're overwhelmed even by me saying that, and it's so easy to get lost in your own phone, and then you feel guilty about allowing your kid to, to navigate their own phone, and all of the things that go on when it comes to life, all of the struggles and all of the condemnation you feel, let me just give you hope. You have been given the privilege of discipling your kids. This is an opportunity for you to freshly take that seriously and enter into the journeys of your kids, no matter where they find themselves. And no matter the, the tension of you feeling like, well, can they talk to me? And I don't feel like there's a, an ongoing back and forth when it comes to relationship. This is, there's hope for you to ask for God to see your kids through new eyes. Just telling you, this is not too late. And then there's the battle of when it comes to how we see faith in the light of the crazy, craziness and busyness of life. There was a, a recent survey called the Obstacles for Growth, Charleston Southern. And this is what they found. They reached out to 20,000 believers, and this is the conclusion that they saw. Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in believers' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Wow. Like this is, the, this is the real struggle and battle that all of us face when it comes to how we see ourselves, how we see our family, how we see our schedule, how we see our resources. And guess, let me just tell you, be the latest to remind you that you can't fix your sight. This is where the gospel comes in. That we can't fix us. You see, the law is all about doing 
and the gospel is done. And see, there's nothing that you can do to change the jacked up nature of your eyes. Like for all of us, our eyes are connected to a heart that's bent the wrong way. And so what this does, what it should do for you and it does for me is remind me, God, I can't do this. You have to help me. And then we enter into hope that we have a God who sees, who sent his son who sees, who sent his people who see. This is the narrative of the whole Bible. A God who sees. This is not something, it's not about five tips to seeing better. It's not what we do. I'm not that good. Like, we can't do this. We are in need. We're desperate in need of a God to help us see right. And so God is all about helping us realize he's a God who sees. Now, in his nature in the Trinity, we have this, this beautiful community that is constantly deferring to one another. It is a Vesuvius of, of just beauty and relationship and constant peace and constant extending grace to one another, receiving it and extending it and receiving. This is what the Trinity is. And out of the Trinity, we have a God who constantly is pursuing his creation who are broken and have rejected him. And yet he pursues them in spite of himself. And we, we, we see it in Genesis 16. Again, I'm going to fly through, through this, but please go back and just write this down. Genesis 16, verse 13, it's, it's the story of, of Hagar and Ishmael, right? Like this is, this is an amazing story of a, of a woman who has been rejected by, by those that were supposed to accept her. It's basically a Genesis chapter 3 all repeated. It is, it is it's mankind rejecting their own. And then God seeing that and coming close to someone who is in desperation and without God's help, it's going to die. And this is what Hagar writes about God. You are El Roy, a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Like this is the God of all creation. We see in this example and then multiple examples after that in the Old Testament of a God who sees, initiates contact, comes close, and now extends the full weight of his resources to help his creation, even though they don't deserve it. We see that at God of seeing, but then you have a son who sees. Now, the question for God's people was, how is God going to treat us? What's his, what's, his, what's his response to us in our weakness and our brokenness? How is he going to, I mean, is he going to come rolling his eyes? Is he going to come waving his finger is he going to come giving us a bunch of things to do? Well, in this, you see, Jesus is God's selfie, right? Like all you, like whatever you see in the Old Testament is you see that embodied and expressed in the life of Jesus Christ. And so, how is Jesus going to treat his people? Well, Luke seven is a great example of that. I mean, it's it's pre- pretty classic that you you have you have. A woman who's just buried her husband. She's about to bury her son. She's broken. She's in need. She is so overwhelmed with her grief that she can't see beyond herself. And it says that Jesus saw her from a distance and comes close, has compassion on her, comes close, and then reaches in and touches this buyer, this, this, this dead body on this casket, gets his hands dirty, 
Like this is what you see in Jesus Christ is a son who sees. How does he see? He sees you from a distance. He initiates contact. He comes close and he gets his hands dirty. and He's willing to touch what nobody else wants to touch. This is, this is exactly what you see in the Old Testament in God. You see it embodied in Jesus Christ. Now the question is, how is God's people going to respond? Well, great question. In Acts chapter 3, what do you have with, with, Jay, with Peter and John? They're on their way to temple, and there's this dude. He'd been standing there, sitting there for a long time. He is beggar. He is lame. He is hopeless. He is helpless. And out of nowhere, you see Peter going, he says, and they locked their eyes. They fixed their gaze on him. And they said, look at me. Silver and gold I don't have, man. I got nothing to give you. But what I do have, I give it. Name of Jesus Christ, rise, rise, rise and walk. And instantly this dude comes out of being lame and he's here. Why? Because a seeing God who sent a seeing son creates seeing people that no longer ignore and no longer walk by what they had always walked by, but they actually have authority and power to do something about it. And this, is, this isn't just like, like Navy SEAL Christianity. This is what all of us are made for and made into, Right? This is what, this is our design. A seeing God creates a seeing son and a seeing people. Now, getting back to Luke chapter 10, I'm sure you're going, where are you going to take Luke 10 with all this? Thank you for asking. This is probably one of my favorite stories because it is, it has been so misinterpreted and misunderstood. And, and I, I, I like it because in this story, you have, you have a lawyer who in that day was a, he, his profession was to know and to understand and interpret and communicate the law. All 613 requirements. This is a lawyer. And so this was a showdown between him and Jesus. And there's a lot of people who are the up and ups who are there to witness Jesus go down. I mean, he's about to go down because the lawyer is on it. And so he's trying to find a loophole. The lawyer is. And, and so it all comes down to who is my neighbor. And Jesus pivots, does this like a Jesus juke type type of thing where out of nowhere he comes into the story. And you have, you have a, a priest who in that day would have been seen as the pinnacle of society. Remember, priests represented the nature and character of God. The priest represented how God treats his people. And what does the priest do? The priest sees the need and he retreats. And goes on the opposite side. The Levite was, his job was to do the duties of the priest. There was lots and lots of Levites that worked on behalf of the priest. And he represented God as well. And he resembled the acts, the response of the priest. That the people that you would hope and expect to have God's heart, they, their eyes are looking at the problem, not seeing it. And then he enters a Samaritan into the equation. And even the idea of a good Samaritan would have been an oxymoron. Samaritans were hated. They were despised. They were called half-breeds, heathen dogs. John 8, 28, the worst insult possible was thrown at Jesus. And this is what it says. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? You're demon-possessed? Samaritans were seen as demon-possessed. 
See, the, the background of a Samaritan was in 1 Kings 12. On the death, at the death of Solomon, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, makes this crazy decision to separate the kingdom of Israel. And so he takes the top the, like, t- 10 tribes and he gives them a new identity. There's, it's now Samaria. And the bottom two tribes were Judea, which is where we get Jews from. You see, these, these ten tribes were their own thing. They, they um, got to a place in 722 B.C. where they were captured by the Assyrians. The Assyrians brought in people from their, uh, their, their environment. They brought them in to marry Jews. From that point forward, they were seen as half-breeds. They were despised and they were hated. Here, Jesus, the, 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 her- the hero of the story, is the very one that was hated and despised and was an outcast. And this gentleman comes to this, this man who was a Jewish man. And so just think about it from that side. Imagine now extending all that you have, all that you are to someone who hates you, who wouldn't do it for you if, if, the, if, if, if it was flipped. And this, this Samaritan man, he takes oil and wine. He gives it to him. He puts the gentleman on his, on his beast, on his mule. He takes care of the tab. He, he gets his hands, puts his hands on the wounds. He gets his hands dirty. He exhausts all that he has. His open hands resulted in dirty hands. Do you know how you know if you have open hands when your hands are getting dirty in the lives of someone else? Do you, do you want to know what it's like when you realize that, man, my hands are open? Is when you find that your hands that are open hands are empty hands because you're giving what you have away. You're giving your time away. You're giving your encouragement away. You're giving your resources away. That is what we find in this gentleman. This is a moment, a defining moment where Jesus says, now, who should you be like? The guy, this lawyer can't even respond. He says, you, you know Jesus. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to say Samaritan. And then his response, Jesus' response is, go and do likewise. Now, we hear that, and our interpretation of that is most likely this is a moral tale for me to do my best. Do my best, and God will take care of the rest. Is this really what Jesus is saying is do your best? Is, is Jesus really saying, now let's just kind of go be nice to people? Or is Jesus saying that the good Samaritan isn't what you and I do because he says, go and do likewise. He says, do this and you will live. Well, guess what? When I read this, I, my conclusion is I can't do this. I'm not the good Samaritan. That, that this man's life isn't a ladder for me to climb. It's a, it's a wall for me to crash into. I can't complete this. I don't have the compassion like this. I don't have the the motivation. I see things poorly. I see things through the wrong filter. I see things with me at the center. I'm not like this man. And Jesus goes, exactly. The purpose of the story is for you to come to this conclusion that I'm broken. Really, at the end of the day, I'm the man who's left for dead. You know, if you and I begin to see ourselves not as in, in, in this perspective of just trying harder or doing more, but actually a broken, 
helpless person that Jesus, the good Samaritan. The story is about Jesus. He is the good Samaritan. He is the one that entered into a reality and he is the one who exhausted his resources for people who hated him, who despised him. He's the one that says, I'll take the bill. He's the one that said that takes the most valuable resource, not oil and wine, but his blood and applies it to your brokenness, past, present, and future. Like this is the, the hope of the gospel that now we have a seeing God who now paves the road for us to see by being the good Samaritan, by being the one that we can't be. And then he turns back to you and I and goes, give, give me your brokenness. I, I want to give you grace. Love this definition of grace by John Piper. Grace is the overflow of God's self-sufficiency. So you cannot have grace if you don't have an utterly, infinitely glorious, self-satisfied, all-sufficient, overflowing God who does not need you at all. This is what the gospel says to you and I is that we are, are the dead man and we have to have a view of Jesus in his greatness, in his sufficiency in his power and if we don't have him that's so great we will now exchange his greatness for our own and we'll make ourselves great but in seeing him as who he's supposed to be it allows for us to take the position of being small being broken but at the same time now receiving from the good samaritan so we can be the good samaritan you see, we are a church that's called to enter into the needs and the challenges of those that are your neighbors and the needs of the city. That like, this is who we are as a people, but the only way for us to see and then have open hands is for us to see Jesus as he's designed to be. And Hebrews 10 or 12 two gives us a really good target of our sight when it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That, that he becomes the right target. And you see, the early church had Jesus as the target, which would allow them to now have the courage to, to make the target needy and the broken. You see, even the son had the target of the father. When the son was on the earth, he said in John, I can only do what I see my father doing. See, the son had his eyes locked on the father. The early church had their eyes locked on Jesus. Now you and I have the privilege of having a right perspective of Jesus and his beauty and his transcendence and his forgiveness and looking at that to allow for us to see and respond right in the world that we live in. It reminds me of, reminds me of, of um, my dad when we had this dog fritz it's a boston terrier and usually boston terriers are like super smart ours was was not that <laughs> had mad problems and uh uh great heart not so much in the brains and so 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 what my dad my dad would try to train this dog and he would take it like a nice piece of meat and he put it down and and he would take this dog and he would go he would try to like get him to have some self-control and so he would say, just stop, just wait. And then he just said, wait, wait, Fritz. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, that dog is destroying the meat. And then so he'd, 
tried it again, but with a different philosophy. He put the meat down, and then he, he went back to the dog, and he said, Fritz, look at me. Look at me. Look at the master. The more he looked at my dad, the more that his eyes were set on the right target, then he was in an environment that he was going to succeed, and he was going to get what he really wants. But he, his eyes weren't fixed on what he wanted. His eyes weren't fixed on, on what he thought he should get or he deserved to get. His eyes were fixed on the one that was helping him through locking eyes with him. And what this text is saying is that we can have eyes that are fixed on Jesus Christ, on who he is and who he has made you to be. And, and having those eyes constantly get washed over with the beauty of the gospel and eyes that are washed over with the Bible where we begin to read about who we really are and whose we are and what Jesus has done at the cross and what the resurrection gives us. I invite you, Romans chapter 8, we're doing a series on Romans 8. This is going to be a great opportunity for you to allow for, for new waters of, of life, of perspective, of allowing for God to be really, really big. We, I encourage you, check it out because this will help you fix your eyes on the master. If your eyes are fixed on the right thing, I guarantee you, your world will now be set into a perspective where it's not about you, it's about the one who created you. It brings me to my, to my con conclusion. I heard a story here recently about a gentleman by the name of Al Hafed. Uh, he, he was a, he, he was a, a man in South Africa, 1820s-ish, and he, he was a farmer. A, he had a meager cabin, a uh, large field, and he had a, a family, uh, uh, I believe two or three kids, and he, each, each day he would, he would go out to the field and he would be so... Uh, uncontent with his life because he didn't feel like he was providing for his family the way that he needed to. He was speaking to a priest and the priest was talking to him about a place called the Valley of the Moon. It was in India. He heard about the potential for diamonds. It was in the Valley of the Moon that apparently all of his dreams were going to come true. The next morning he woke up and he felt like I need to do this. And he, so he, he sold his whole tract of land, his home, he sold all that he had, collected the money, moved his family to a neighbor, and he set out on this adventure to try to find diamonds. It took him to Europe, no diamonds. India, no, no diamonds. Palestine, still no diamonds. Finally ended up in Spain, where he wrote a note to his wife, there are no diamonds in the world. And then he cast himself into a raging river, and then he died. Story goes on, and there was a the gentleman who purchased his land. Um, he was beginning to cultivate the land, and he was beginning to find large rocks all over. It was really annoying for him. He would collect these large black rocks. He was trying to make space for him to, to begin to plant and these stacks of rocks were getting bigger and bigger. And then his, his camel was going into a, a stream next to his, his land. And he saw something sparkly in the stream. And he collected it. 
He put it up on his mantle because it was so beautiful. The same priest that talked, went to Al-Hafed comes to this gentleman, comes into his home and sees this stone on his mantle and he looks at it and he's shocked and he says, diamonds. You have diamonds. And the men like, no, I, I, I don't. And he said, no, no, you have diamonds. Well, it turns out this was the Golando diamond mine in South Africa. The queen of England has purchased her diamonds from her crown there. What one man looked at and was not content with, he attempted to find what he was longing for somewhere else. And he was missing the acres of diamonds that his feet were planted on. You see, what the gospel does, what the, the power of the cross does, it allows for us to have the right perspective so we can begin to see our life through that lens and grid and now look at the marriage that you feel like is broken and go, there's acres of diamonds here. There's, there's, there's acres and acres and acres of diamonds that God wants to bring about so I don't have to go somewhere else to find it. But I can now begin to mine out these acres and this beauty and this power and this transcendence from who Jesus is and what he wants to draw out of what he's created. There's acres of diamonds in your kids. For some of you, you have kids that have just lost their mind. No, seriously, like they've lost it. They're a different human being. And you pray for them and you don't know what to do with them. And it's easy to disconnect. And yet, that what if you begin to find your perspective in Jesus, the beauty of the cross, the power of a resurrected king that now allows for you to take those eyes and not look at your kids, but see them. But now there's acres of diamonds in those kids. You begin to see, oh man, I want it's time for me to get my hands dirty. It's time for me to now, now enter into the fray and, and now extend compassion. And God, you give me that compassion. Allow it to grow for my kids. There's acres of diamonds at your job. For many of you, you it's just going to work is, is, is a toil. It's frustrating. It's overwhelming. It's easy to look past it and now look for something else. And what if God wants to give you a new perspective about your job where there's acres and acres and acres of diamonds as you look to Jesus, the author, the finisher, perfecter of your faith. And, and I think the big question is like, Corey, give me one practical step. How do I get started? I love repentance. Do you know what repent means? Re is, is new. Repent is a view. It's a new view. You see, God is so committed to you and I being a receiving from a seeing God who makes seeing people that he gives us the gift of repentance. God, I am no longer holding on to what I am trying to control, but repentance is having eyes that are, go from seeing inside, looking around, but going, God, I give up. I surrender. And in the same way we need a shower on a daily basis, we need repentance on a daily basis. This is the gift that God has died to give us and he wants us to open up. And I'm telling you, as we open up this gift of repentance and starting there, then what happens is that, man, our view of God gets bigger and our view of ourself gets smaller. Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give himself strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I'm telling you, as we come to a place of saying, I can't, 
we have a God who says, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I am a God who is waiting to work on your behalf. I don't want you to work for me. I want to work on your behalf. I want to come close. I want to extend myself. I want to exhaust who I am right where you are so that you can see me freshly and now begin to see your, word, your world as a good Samaritan so that we can enter into the fray. This is who we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the privilege of, of just saying yes, beginning with a yes. Lord, forgive us for the way that we've looked inside instead of beginning with looking up. Lord, I thank you that, that there are diamonds of ac- there's acres and acres of diamonds in the places where we've just, we've basically punted. We just have come to the conclusion that God, you're not going to work here. You all know he is, he's going to work. He has not given up. He's beginning to allow for your eyes to be fixed on the right thing so you can begin to respond in the right way.